0: Diane Feinstein was ready to walk away from politics in the fall of 1978. She had just spent nine years by that point on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and she'd run for mayor twice and lost. And her husband had just died of cancer. But another tragic event would change her life and reset a political career that would go on to make history. On November 27, 1979, Gunshots rang out in San Francisco City Hall. A former city supervisor had killed the mayor and another supervisor named Harvey Milk. Feinstein ran to Milk to feel for a pulse. Before long, she was standing in front of TV cameras.
1: Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. No. No. The suspect is Supervisor Dan White.
0: The country watched as Feinstein, solemn and grounded, promised that the city would get through the devastating events of that day. She went on to become the mayor because of the city's succession laws. And she was the first woman to hold that position. In 1992, she won a seat in the U.S. Senate. Once again, it was a first. The first woman in California ever to do so.
1: Tonight? We celebrate a victory of the people. And what a great victory it is.
0: Tonight. In this Thursday, just yesterday, she walked slowly on the Senate floor to cast what would be her last vote.
2: Mrs. Feinstein. Mrs. Feinstein, I...
0: Dianne Feinstein died at her home in Washington Thursday night. The cause was not given in a statement by her office. Senator Feinstein was 90 years old, the oldest member of the Senate, and the longest-serving woman in its history. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. It's Friday, September 29th. Today... The end of an era with the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein, in the existential crisis for Democrats that comes with her vacant Senate seat. Paul Kane, the post senior congressional correspondent, has been on Capitol Hill all day. So, Paul, it's fair to say that this was not expected, given that Feinstein was at work just yesterday. Yes, um, it's it's.
2: Crazy to think that this was unexpected, given that uh, Senator Feinstein's health issues had become such a, a focal part, uh, a central part of stories about her for the last three or four years. But yes, the the last few weeks, she's been in the Capitol. She's been attending Democratic caucus lunches. She's been voting. She was in, uh, in the Capitol yesterday and voted, um, despite a lot of attention on her health issues. For the last several years it did kind of come as a surprise to a lot of us who followed the senate closely
0: and what's the mood like in the senate right now have you had a chance to speak to any of feinstein's colleagues and how are they feeling today i think
2: they're all feeling um a, a bit of of remorse i think they're 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 feeling sad they missed their friend who was uh such a force in the senate our nation will be forever thankful to Senator Feinstein for the accomplishments she fought for. Tributes soon started to flow in once the Senate opened up at 10 a.m. Friday morning. And, you know, this is where Chuck Schumer led off with those tributes. Diane's
0: work extended far beyond the United States Senate floor, as she gave a voice, a platform, and a leader to women throughout the country for decades. Diane didn't just push down doors that were closed for women. She held them open for generations of women after her
2: to follow her. You know, and th- there'll be, I'm sure, a contingent that gets out there to Cal- uh, California, assuming that's where uh, services are held. Um, uh, and maybe there'll be something here in Washington as well. I think those are decisions that will be announced, you know, in the coming hours or days.
0: So I'd love to hear from you. You know, she was the first woman to lead the Senate Intelligence Committee. She sat on the Judiciary Committee. What are some of the things we need to know about her role and influence in the Senate over the last three decades?
2: Yeah, she took on the NRA. She took on the CIA. The first 25 years or so she was in the Senate, she, she was a, a legislative force, Less than a year into the Senate in 1993, um, she did something that uh, no other uh, Democrat can really say.
1: It's crystal clear to me that people are going to be better off without these weapons.
2: She authored the assault weapons ban and got a majority of people to vote for it, and it passed and became law. You know, she took on the NRA on a really big issue and won.
1: This is very precise legislation. It is very carefully crafted. It is aimed toward 19 specific assault weapons and their copycats.
2: Um, As chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she led an investigation into um, waterboarding and other forms of torture that our intelligence agencies ran in the early days, uh, post 9-11, early days of Iraq war. History will judge
1: us by our commitment to a just society governed by law and the willingness to face an ugly truth and say never
2: again. And she faced a lot of opposition from not just, you know, the Bush-Cheney administration, but when it came to the Obama administration, people like Leon Panetta, who was the CIA director and then the secretary of defense, were pushing back against her and did not want her to release a report on it. She fought them uh, tooth and nail. She eventually released the report.
1: There may never be the right time to release this report. The instability we see today will not be resolved in months or years, but this report is too important to shelve indefinitely.
2: She ran the Judiciary Committee for Democrats Um, It was at a, a, a later time in her career, and that's when questions really did start to surface about her health and her mental sharpness.
0: Yeah, Paul, I mean, I know that just following this through the news, it felt like a lot of attention was being put on Feinstein and particularly what could happen to the Judiciary Committee because of some of these problems. Can you put that more in context? What exactly were the concerns and what was going on?
2: So in the late winter, early spring, Senator Feinstein missed uh, several weeks, not a couple months of, of time in the Senate after she had this bout with shingles um, and, and a whole bunch of debilitating fallout. It wasn't that big of a deal. The Democrats had you know, a de facto 50-49 majority during that time. There were some times when John Fetterman was also not there, so it was kind of like 49 49. But the bigger issue was the Senate Judiciary Committee, where a lot of President Biden's judicial nominees kind of stalled for this time, um, where anybody who was, you know, sort of more considered a more liberal judicial nominee or a nominee for some uh, position in the Justice Department, that they were considered a little liberal all of the Republicans would be blocking this person, and it was an 11-10 split. Without Feinstein, it became a 10-10 committee, and you have to have a positive vote to get out of committee. So you had this sort of backlog of nominees, and that's when there became a really, a bit of an ugly, intense clamor for her to to either resign, um, when there was a uh, an effort to re- temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee um, while she was home rehabbing from having uh, the, the shingles and all of the bad fallout of that. The Republicans blocked it and said, no, we don't do this sort of temporary replacement thing. So there are some who are worried that, you know, the Republicans might play some sort of hardball and try to not let the committee uh, reform itself. That would be unprecedented. I don't expect that. Mm-hmm. I believe McConnell. McConnell was friendly with uh, with Feinstein. Um, I don't think McConnell would allow that to happen.
0: You know, Paul, I know you have covered a significant amount of Feinstein's career. Is there anything that stands out from you from this time period that, you know, you really think tells us something about her as a senator?
2: Sure. Okay, so in June of 2008, Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have just had this incredible slugfest of a primary. It got bitter at times. it It was it was heated. There was you know there was passion throughout the country and throughout Congress because it was very evenly split right through the Senate. It was it was there were divisions across every lines. And Senator Feinstein was this much of a trusted figure when it was all over. When it was clear that Obama had secured the nomination, one night, a whole bunch of Secret Service vans pulled up on her street and out popped Senator Barack Obama, the Democratic nominee-in-waiting, and Senator Clinton. They walked up and into Senator Feinstein's home. No one was there except Diane Feinstein. The press hadn't been told about this. It was a clandestine meeting in which these two major figures of the Democratic Party, who had just had this brutal primary, were going to sit and talk. When word got out that it happened, and the next day, we're in the Capitol, and we all descended on Senator Feinstein, and we just said, what happened? And she said, well, they came in. I sat them down in, I guess, her living room or sitting room. I got them a couple glasses of water. And I went upstairs to my bedroom and I just let them talk. <laughs> we looked at her and said, what, what, what do you mean?" And she goes, "No, that's why they trusted me because they knew I would go away and I wouldn't bother them and I've no intention of ever asking them what was said. And to this day, I have no idea what happened in the in the first floor of Senator Feinstein's home that night. And I'm not sure uh, that Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton have ever talked about it. but they had a conversation. Uh, Hillary Clinton endorsed him, campaigned for him. uh, He won the presidency. And, you know, that's the type of person Feinstein was inside the Democratic caucus and the Democratic Party. She was a trusted figure who could open her doors to two people who had become enemies so they could try to make the peace.
0: After the break, we dig into the considerations and potential controversy around who could fill Feinstein's seat. We'll be right back. You know, I know a lot of people are processing this loss on just a lot of different levels right now, but what are some of the most immediate questions that arise now that, you know, there is an empty seat in the Senate? And what are some of the things that are going to happen next?
2: So, Governor Newsom back in California has kind of bungled his way through this whole process um, because in early 2021, Senator Kamala Harris became Vice President Kamala Harris, and he had a, an appointment to make, and he appointed Senator Padilla to to make history as the first Hispanic Latino uh, senator from California. That that angered some. Uh, some African Americans in California who thought that, you know, uh, Kamala Harris uh, should have been replaced by an African American. Um, so then he made a, a, a sort of a, flip, a flippant remark on an MSNBC show one day a couple of years ago, saying he guaranteed he would replace Dianne Feinstein with a black woman if there was a vacancy.
1: If, in fact, Dianne Feinstein uh, were to retire, uh, will you nominate an African-American woman um, to restore the seat that Kamala Harris is no longer in the United States Senate? And do you have a name in mind?
2: I have multiple names yes yes in mind. Sir, yes no. We have multiple names in mind, and the answer is yes. So then as Feinstein's health deteriorated and it became clear she wasn't running for re-election, um, people started you know, asking him, are you going to appoint A black woman, because one of the candidates for the Senate race is now Barbara Lee uh, from Oakland, a congresswoman from Oakland who is who is an African American woman. And he kind of backtracked, he kind of sidetracked, he dodged, and um, most recently he finally said, "Look, I will stick to my pledge uh, of appointing a black woman." But I'm only going to appoint someone who serves as a caretaker and doesn't run for the seat because this Senate race to replace Senator Feinstein is already fully engaged. Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, uh, Congress uh, members of the House from the L.A. area, are both running. They've raised tens of millions of dollars. Barbara Lee is running. A few others are running. So that is what Newsom is doing.
0: So the person that Newsom eventually appoints They will serve out the rest of um, Dianne Feinstein's term. So the 2024 Senate race is still going to go along as planned. And Paul, I'm wondering right now, given all of that tension that you alluded to, is there kind of an existential crisis for Democrats right now about – this seat and does that say anything about tensions within the party about the direction of the party why is there kind of this controversy around a seat in a pretty solid blue state
2: well that's part of it it's not just a solid blue state it's california which you know california kind of thinks of itself as its own nation state you know it's a place that will um that that provides us the technology industry and the entertainment industry, and you know, they're their own entity. And I think there were especially liberal activists uh, on the far left who really felt like this was uh, an elderly woman who was hanging on to this seat longer and the California of all places should have a fiery liberal fighter for their state. Um, so that created this underlying tension. And now, in a state that is really hard to do any sort of grassroots, political, electoral uh, campaigning, it's just hard. The state is so big. It's massive. Um, What happens is, uh, for the campaigns, a lot of them are determined by who can raise the most money and who can create the most advertisements that both land on your television set, your car radio, and more importantly these days – your phone, your your social media pages. Um, and you've got people like Adam Schiff and Katie Porter who are raising gobsmacks of money um in, in a race that all is going to also get into a lot of identity politics. Um, you know, and that goes into both re- ideological, uh, race, ethnicity, and geographic, uh, for what it's worth the Northern California Bay Area uh, Democrats have dominated politics in California for a really, 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 really long time. Senator Padilla is down from the LA area. And now you have Adam Schiff and uh, Katie Porter, uh, one from Los Angeles County and the other from Orange County, who are, who are squaring off. And their, their sort of clash is based on you know Adam Schiff saying he's the biggest fighter ever against Donald Trump, um, an appeal that a lot of uh, Democrats and a lot of liberals will will like to hear. Katie Porter comes at this more from the progressive wing, uh, especially as a student, literally a student in terms of uh, Harvard and in terms of political life of Elizabeth Warren, and Katie Porter is trying to fashion that image. For the future of the Democratic Party. And Barbara Lee is uh, an older member of the Congressional Black Caucus who feels as if the rest of them are are kind of, you know, surfing in her wake that she was she was doing all of this stuff 20 years ago when it was out of fashion. So there's a lot of geographic and ideological and identity politics at play for what comes next for the state of California.
0: Yeah, you know, I myself actually grew up in the San Francisco Bears. So when you ticked off some of those names, I felt that they were about as institutional as like Dusty Baker and Brian Wilson from the San Francisco Giants. Yeah. But, Paul, you know, so what are you watching it play out next? What do you think are going to be the next beats that you as a, you know, someone who's very much steeped in politics is going to be looking for?
2: Well, I, th- I, I think it will be the the appointment. Um, you know, there's also got to be this question as to, you know, whether Republicans try to play some sort of really, really bad politics and try to block the the re, the the reforming of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, but I think the appointment will be an interesting uh, interesting thing, and you know, and getting the assurance that in fact this will be someone who serves in that caretaker mold, and then. Um, you know then it's the rest of the the Senate race there that that real big battle. Um, and also the Republicans in California, it, do they put someone up in this race that uh, this Senate race to succeed Feinstein, even if they know this person is just going to lose uh, poorly, you know, they've had a couple Senate races in this uh, this sort of Byzantine way that California elects statewide officers. It's, it's this so-called jungle primary. Everybody's thrown into the jungle together, mm-hmm. um, Republicans, Democrats, independents, whoever. And mm-hmm. whoever the top two vote-getters are, you that becomes the the general election matchup. And there have been a couple Senate races where it has just ended up Democrat versus Democrat. And that is a terrible outcome for Republicans, not because of the Senate race. They're going to lose that. But if there's nothing at the top of that ticket to draw out Republicans um with a 0.0% chance, just Democrat versus Democrat um for the Senate seat. And if if they don't put somebody out there who is somewhat reasonable or realistic, who can get 40 some percent of the vote, um then it could really hurt down ballot. And you could see Democrats run up a few wins in uh, House seats in California that could flip the balance of power here in the House of Representatives.
0: Well, Paul, you know, thank you so much for sharing these insights. I know it's a busy day up on Capitol Hill for me, but it was great to get to talk to you.
2: Sure thing. Appreciate it.
0: Paul Kane is the senior Congressional correspondent for the Post. For more on the life and legacy of Diane Feinstein, head over to Washingtonpost.com. That's it for post reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rena Flores. It was edited by Renita Jablonski and mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks to Trinity Webster Bass. Have a great weekend and remember that you can kick off the new week on Monday with our morning podcast The Seven. If you don't already listen to it, it's great. Look it up right now and make sure you hit follow. My friend and colleague Jeff Pierre runs down the seven most important and interesting stories that you need to know all in under seven minutes right around 7 a.m. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Izadi, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop Sand, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svirnovsky, Sabby Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Trinity Webster Bass. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.